You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. The best laid schemes of mice and men, wrote Scottish poet Robert Burns, gang aft a glee. As we head into 2018, there are two phenomena which, were either of them to return in any meaningful way, would completely change the entire dynamic of bond and equity markets, interest rates, commodity prices, even Bitcoin, and most certainly render the best laid plans of men, if not mice, well and truly a glee. Last week, in part one of our two-part look at what lies beyond in 2018, we looked at the first of these, volatility. However, there is another force which, when unleashed, as the world found out the hard way in the 1970s, can completely upend every asset class on the planet and make fools of central bankers. And, as we head into 2018, the first traces of it can clearly be seen and felt everywhere. This week... On Adventures in Finance, The Return of Inflation. Today is the 21st of December 2017, somehow, and welcome to episode 47 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, my poor beleaguered, a trusty producer, James. Why am I poor and beleaguered? Well, I, I've had I've had an email this week taking me to task for giving you a hard time. Now, I, I would like to apologise on the air <laughs> for any distress I may have caused you, uh, and you know any hurt, any upset. I don't want this to become a movement. I don't want uh, you know the save the K-Man one posters showing around everywhere. So, on air, James, my trusty producer. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I guess now I can stop crying myself to sleep every night. Exactly right. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep silent on the abuse that you give me off air. The sticky notes stuck on my back, the photos taken of them and posted out, that kind of abuse is going to remain... Yeah, see, that's the thing. People don't see the other side of the story. I know they don't. I know they don't. Yes. You're, you're one of these sneaky guys. <laughs> I, I do all my abusing of you in public, and you're just sneaky behind the scenes. Anyway, we have a lot to get to this week, and uh, we are going to jump into the second part of our two-part year-end uh, podcast, which is going to deal with a couple of themes that we think are going to be important as we head into 2018. Last week, we had the fabulous Chris Cole and uh, David Dredge join us to talk about volatility. And this week, the subject at hand is inflation and the possible return of that phenomenon. Joining me are Jawed Mian, the author of Stray Reflections, Jonathan Payne, uh, a first-time guest, author of the fabulously titled Payne Report, and my old friend Peter Bookvar, who's the co-CIO at Bookmark Advisors and the author of The Book Report, 
and we are going to speak to those three fine gentlemen about their views on inflation as we head into 2018, because I suspect this is something that could upset several apple carts. And we will also be joined by Danielle DiMartino Booth and Peter Atwater, who are going to offer us their recipes for success. But let's get to our main topic at hand this week, which is inflation. And first up, let's welcome Jawad Mian, all the way from Dubai. Jawad, welcome to the podcast, mate. Absolute pleasure. So inflation is the topic of the day with uh, particular reference to the outlook for next year. And I know this is something that's been on your mind recently and uh, you've laid out in Stray Reflections your thoughts on it. So I, I thought this would be a great chance for people to get a sense of where you think we are in the inflation cycle. Sure. So our view is that uh, the global economy passed maximum point of deflationary pressure in Q1 2016. That's what, if you remember when fears of a Chinese devaluation were epic. At the same time, you had oil in the, in the 20s. Uh, and we felt that was actually uh, the peak from a deflationary mindset, psychology perspective. And to understand why, I think it's important to uh, get a grasp on some of the structural forces that people often talk about. And the most commonly cited are one, um, the killer Ds, right? So uh, the dollar is deflationary, the debt dynamics are deflationary, and demographics. And if we look at them individually, you know, I think the same reasons that people actually cite for why deflation is here to stay, we find are actually strong arguments as to why the next five years will probably be more inflationary than deflationary. For the dollar, for example, I think with Trump as president now, the consensus was that we're going to see a sharply shooting dollar, but the exact opposite has happened. And looking at his domestic policies as well as his foreign policies, our view is that it's only going to accelerate long-term international diversification away from the dollar. So that puts the dollar on a weakening path on a multi-year horizon, which gives support to commodities. So if you look at the you know um, weak inflation readings, back in 2011, gold was at 1900. No one talked about deflation. It's not a coincidence that 2011 was a time when the dollar bottomed and commodities peaked, and we've seen an inverse relationship since. And I think if we're going to have the dollar on a multi-year weakening path, then the commodity prices will get a lift. Oil prices have already doubled. Our medium-term outlook on oil prices is, is remains constructive. So I think commodities are going to be rising, which will feed the inflationary dy- dynamic. If you look at demographics, which is perhaps the most contentious, that's interesting because you know an IMF report recently talked about how um, you know, demographics over the last 30 years have been quite deflationary because of uh, baby boomers and, and how uh, the savings rates were going up. But now um, demographics are actually going to be very inflationary uh, over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And that's because of two reasons. One, we're seeing uh, f- you know, falling unemployment rates globally and tight- tightening employment markets globally, which is finally seeing wages pick up. And secondly, we're seeing savings rates go down. So the, the, the savings rate in Japan is actually negative. Uh, and if you look at the U.S., the savings rate peaked almost a year ago and it's starting to come down, which, again, is positive for the economy, positive for the consumer, and positive for the inflationary outlook. So savings rates coming down, wages are going up, the demographic situation uh, is changing in a way which is going to be good for growth uh, uh, and uh, good for inflation, relatively speaking, and commodities and dollar. So it all adds up to our theme, which you're talking about, is the end of deflation. In the next five years, we will be much more inflationary than people expect. 
So with with that move, with that shift from a deflationary bias to an inflationary bias, obviously the the, the concern amongst a lot of people has been that once inflation actually reasserts its dominance over deflation, things could move significantly higher very quickly because of all the let's call it dry kindling out there in in amongst the bush. Do you do you see that inflation there's a, there's a real danger that it could accelerate far faster than people think, or do you think the first uh, phase of this move to an inflationary bias will be reasonably benign? Yeah, so we think it, it'll be reasonably benign. And the reason for that is that the deflationary mindset uh, is so pervasive that it's going to take time to dethrone those dominant beliefs. And inflation is a lagging indicator, right? So we're actually not even going to see inflation show itself up till maybe um, middle of next year. And I think the best leading indication that we see is from the ISM, which is about an 18-month leading indication. So based on the recovery that we've seen in the ISM from Feb 2016 lows till today, which is now at multi-year highs, if we project that forward uh, 18 months, that's how inflation typically moves in the cycle, which tells us that as we speak, inflation is bottoming uh, between now and Q1. And I would not be surprised if a year from now, um, inflation is closer to the Fed's target. And I think there's no reason to really expect it to run away. I mean, structurally, things have changed. But I would argue it's not even necessary for inflation to run away. All that is necessary is for inflation to get closer to target and then stay uh, above target for a couple of quarters. The Fed has uh, been aggressive about deflation. I think now they're going to go, they're going to lag both the growth curve and the inflation curve. So higher inflation will be welcomed, and it won't be a problem uh, initially. So it will be benign for at least the next couple of years. Beyond that, we've got some scenario which would make us more nervous. Now, this, this is interesting because this idea of, of uh, tolerating inflation above the target for a while, uh, you know, Ben Bernanke put out um, a white paper recently through the Brookings Institute talking about exactly this, this new alternative framework where he explicitly said that, that we, should, we should get back to allowing inflation to run hot for every day that it runs cold. So every day under 2%, it should be allowed to run hot above 2% for, for a similar amount of time. When I read that, I, I had alarm bells going off that, okay, here's where this is going to go. We are setting the stage to allow inflation to run hot. If, if you're right, and this is benign um, in terms of real inflationary pressure, what does that mean for asset prices as we go into next year? So, um, I mean, I think next year will be a tale of two halves um, where we are actually negative going into 2018 and for the first half of 2018 for a number of reasons that I guess are different from the topic of this, of this podcast. But um, I think... What we're going to see um, from uh, an inflation perspective and from a market's perspective is that, like I said, you need to see inflation show and then really manifest itself. So unlike other economic cycles or past economic cycles, which were, uh, were burst because of a bubble or uh, a debt crisis or some other sort of excess in a particular segment of the economy, we actually think this will be a situation where you get overheating economic overheating, and inflation uh, and complacency about inflation risks, right? So if you imagine a scenario where the Fed is lagging behind the growth and inflation curve, you actually get tax cuts and you get fiscal stimulus coming in at this late stage of an economic cycle, then um, we will see uh, markets and investors begin to get nervous 
only when and if we see inflation above the central bank target, and we, we think for at least a couple of quarters. When that begins to happen, that's when you should see a repricing in the market on two fronts. You know, so once inflation shows up, um, that's probably when you're going to see a repricing in the fixed income market. And we always talk about the main catalyst for a bear market and fixed income has to be inflation, which has been absent. So I think uh, we don't expect any large price moves in the treasury market for the next one year. Uh, we don't see a crisis there because, like I said, inflation it will take time uh, to show up. And secondly, inflation is the only thing that can really derate tech multiples. And tech has been driving this bull market. So without technology leading um, and with a repricing in the fixed income market, you could probably end up in a scenario where you have both equities and fixed income selling off. Again, which is unlike the experience that most investors remember. And I think from our perspective and, and based on the different scenarios that we look at, you know, this sort of a dangerous climax, uh, the earliest uh, that we see occurring uh, when everything comes together is about 2019. Uh, so for the next year uh, and a half, two years, we still think risk assets will do well, despite tactical, uh, you know, hiccups here and there. So, so when you look at, I mean, there's this, uh, we'll call this the Goldilocks scenario, certainly for the next year, because you know, it sounds great. We get to make this smooth transition from deflation to inflation, which is what we've been trying to achieve. We kind of get there, it's benign. Uh, we get another year's runway where this uh, this uh, expansion, certainly in the stock market, can, can, can continue. Uh, let me do that again. Can continue. But when you look at this case and you think about um, what might potentially uh, derail it, where are you looking carefully for signs that, okay, if I see X, Y, or Z, I'm going to have to rethink this this uh, this scenario that I've laid out? So because our scenario is actually uh, one where a lot of things go right, yeah. <laughs> counterintuitively, <laughs> counterintuitively to, uh, you know, previous, I guess, bear markets where a lot of things were just waiting to go wrong. So I think what we're looking for um, that would guide us on this path would be, um, you know, we'll get the tax cuts, then you're going to start hearing talks about the infrastructure package or something on, on, on that front. Um, perhaps after the 2018 midterms, you want to see oil prices, you know, close to 80 bucks, if not higher. Um, you want to see uh, wage gains pick up, and we think uh, Phillips, Phillips curve is not dead, and we will see uh, wage gains coming in. Um, so you want to see all of these things happening together. You want to see uh, the euro well above 120. So you need to see the dollar weakening, uh, you know, with more um, global, uh, with a much more global uh, sell-off across multiple currencies. And I think if these things happen collectively, weaker dollar, higher commodity prices, stimulus talk, um, then you know, uh, and let's say the Fed, you know, lagging the inflation curve and the narrative within the Fed talking about how they want to target, let's say, nominal GDP and letting, run, uh, letting inflation run hot. You know, a lot of these things come together. Uh, that's when you know you know, the toxic is brewing uh, and you should expect some sort of a repricing. And like I said, you know, the repricing will only occur um, first for inflation to show itself, which is okay, not a big deal. But second, it really needs to manifest and not just manifest in the data, but also manifest in investor psychology. And given how 
you know, uh, stuck we still are to this day with the deflation mindset. Like I said, I think it'll take time for the for people to generally dethrone those beliefs and accept a new narrative. So, so how important in all of this is the dollar? Because everywhere we look, and you and I have spoken about the dollar at length previously, um, and we're kind of on the same side of the ship now, and that we're both we both feel it's going to go lower. But how important is that? Because everywhere I look um, at every asset class, at every kind of debatable possible outcome, I kind of see in the middle of it, the dollar kind of standing there uh, proud and everybody looking at it for a clue as to what's going to happen. You know, we're at an interesting juncture with the dollar. You know, we've discussed this before where I think the dollar is the most single most uh, important macro variable. But um, given falling asset correlations, and we're seeing that play out over the last few months, it's become very difficult to... Um, rely on intermarket analysis. What I mean by that is oftentimes you can look at the dollar and based on that, you can, you can predict what's going to happen in some other asset classes. It's become more difficult to do that because correlations are breaking and they're falling. Um, and it's much more helpful to look at independent, bottom-up, genuine themes. And that's what we're more focused on. So as opposed to relying on the dollar outlook as a central piece of a macro picture, but just to look at more genuine independent themes. Having said that, uh, when you look at the dollar on a multi-year time horizon, uh, you know, it's, we just find it very difficult to imagine a scenario where the dollar goes up uh, significantly in a very chaotic fashion. And part of that is another theme, which is that we've just seen a massive concentration of capital within the U.S. for the last four or five years, and we're just beginning to see that leak out now. Because for the last five years, we were in an environment where people were bearish on growth, uh, bearish on politics, whether it's Europe, whether it's China, um, whether it's Japan even. And that psychology is beginning to change, whereby as you know, uh, risk-taking appetite improves, you want to crowd out of your U.S. positions and invest globally. And that's partly explaining how non-U.S. markets have outperformed significantly. And that's a multi-year theme. So that will also tell you that the dollar will be on a downward path. So it's very difficult for me to um, come up with a bullish scenario for the dollar. The only one I can think of is trade. And uh, I think 2018 will see trade come back as a pretty important theme ahead of the 2018 midterms. And if you see much more hawkish rhetoric on trade and, and action with NAFTA and perhaps more so with China, you could see uh, investors panic and crowd into the dollar because it would give you a sign that the, the, the U.S. trade deficit is, is narrowing or closing. But looking at recent data, uh, it's difficult still to come up with that view until we see something as opposed to just words. So, you know, we are at an interesting juncture with the dollar. Outlook is, you know, um, less clear than it was at the beginning of the year when we were aggressively short. So we're just looking at uh, things from a bottom-up perspective. And there's some currencies against the dollar that we want to be long, others that we want to be short. Joe, for the guys uh, out there listening that don't know how to find you uh, on Twitter and the internet, give people all the good stuff about where you're hanging out these days. Thanks. Um, so our Twitter handle is at J-S-M-I-A-N, M-I-A-N, and our website is stray-reflections.com. You can hit me anywhere you want, and I'll hopefully respond back in time. Fantastic. And, and again, a, another massive personal endorsement from me, uh, Jawad. You are truly an original thinker, and uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for taking the time. 
Thank you. You know, one of the things I love about Jawad's work is he, he's incredibly thoughtful and he takes his time and he analyzes things very carefully. And I think uh, I wanted to get him on first just to hear the fact that he's not saying inflation is going to be roaring next year, but he thinks uh, it's time to start paying attention because that's the likely path of things. And this idea of handicapping potential market dynamics is a really important one. Joining me next is someone who has a very clear uh, expectation for inflation, and that is Peter Bookfar, the co-CIO at Bookmark Advisors and the writer of The Book Report. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, great to be here. Now, uh, you and I exchanged emails uh, last week uh, about uh, a topic close to both our hearts, which is uh, inflation. And so the timing was perfect given this, uh, this particular podcast. So I wanted to, uh, to get you to come on and join us and, and talk a little bit about your views on inflation as we look towards 2018 and what you see happening and what you think that may mean for us uh, as we head into 2018. Well, I've made it a point to focus as much as I can on the inflation picture. Because when you think about what is the thing that can upset the entire global apple cart, and it is higher inflation because of the context of where interest rates are and the, you know, the bond bubble that we're in, where you can even call it a central bank bubble uh, that manifested itself in fixed income. So I like to read uh, Market, which comes out with the monthly PMIs, uh, they have a lot of commentary since they do survey a lot of businesses in a variety of industries to try to gain some uh, anecdotal um, pieces of information on inflation. And then outside of you know, the government statistics that we get every month, it's always good to also dig in uh, to the wage side, look at the Fed beige book, look at uh, what's going on with Japanese wages, look what's happening to uh, this new inflation gauge that the New York Fed has come out with called the underlying inflation gauge. So you put all these together, uh, you look at commodity prices also, importantly, and I'm seeing a, a buildup of inflationary pressures that will not immediately necessarily show up in the CPI and PPI stats, but something that I think will definitely show up uh, as we move into Q1, Q2 of uh, 2018. So do, do you think people have become almost blinded to these inflationary pressures because we've, you know, we've seen, we've had false alarms um, we've seen such a, an enormous amount of stimulus applied um, to to every market you can think of, and yet nothing's happened. So do you think people are just making assumptions now about, oh, this will pass too, or is, or is it really different this time and people are just completely looking the wrong way? Well, I think it's, it's, it's the assumptions that when we had all the money printing, people said, okay, we're going to see inflation. That was the textbook result of what the what central banks have done. And since it didn't happen, because it was offset by a dramatic decline in velocity, and now that we're actually beginning to exit from the extreme monetary policy, people think, well, if it didn't show up with all the money printing, well, it's definitely not going to show up if the, Fed, if the central banks are going to start reversing themselves. Then also people still rely on you know, the backward-looking nature of you know, the CPI statistics, whether it's in Japan, in Europe, or, or the U.S. I think, particularly in the U.S., the Fed has sort of brainwashed people to focus on the PCE, the personal consumption expenditure inflation gauge, as opposed to CPI. The problem with that is, is that the PCE is a flawed inflation gauge because a big chunk of that number is healthcare, and within that healthcare component is Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements that are essentially price fixed by the government. 
So by diverting our attention to PCE from CPI, the Fed has been able to conduct a completely different monetary policy than if they were watching CPI. And CPI, core CPI, I think we, it was above 2% for 17 straight months um, over the last couple of years. But because the Fed was looking at PCE, they told us all that there's no inflation. But now, post-hurricanes in the U.S., uh, we've seen it's backed off a little bit over the last week, but commodity prices rose to a nine-month high. We're seeing a lot of supplier delivery issues and capacity constraints. And we're seeing wage pressures left and right. Anybody just has to look at the beige book for that and not pay attention to average hourly earnings, which I don't think is necessarily a, a proper gauge of where wages are going. But it's not just a U.S. thing. I'm seeing things in Asia. I'm seeing things in Europe. Uh, I pay attention to uh, Japanese consumer confidence because within that number, there's a component called income growth. That number in the last read rose 10 points in one month. Year-over-year, regular base pay in Japan is up seven-tenths of a percent, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a 17-and-a-half-year high. And if you read the last market uh, commentary uh, on the services sector in Japan, let alone the pressures that are building on manufacturers, I'm just going to read verbatim. Japanese service sector firms were faced with intensifying cost pressures in November. Input price inflation accelerated for the fourth month in succession to the joint sharpest since August 2018. 08, on par with September of that year, panel members cited higher labor expenses as key driver behind greater cost burdens. Higher input prices and strong demand encourage firms to raise output charges, albeit moderately, but although moderate, the rate of inflation quickened to a 28-month high. Now, that's Japan, which is a center of basically zero inflation, a.k.a. price stability, ironically. But we know what's going on in the U.K. with the weaker pound and the 3% inflation at the consumer level that's driving. And we're seeing inflation pressures, both manufacturing and services throughout Europe as well. So, so Peter, what do you think it takes for the market to start pricing this in? Because your, your point is, is well made and well taken, that, that these pressures seemingly are everywhere. And obviously wage, impression is, uh, wage inflation is always... The, the the big kahuna but it doesn't seem to matter to people yet what why are they looking through this why are bond markets looking through this why are equity investors looking through this do you, i mean do you have any sense you can cast on that yeah the, the 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 markets are not discounting mechanisms anymore they're purely reactive they're reactive to the news that's right in front of their face i mean we we've been hearing about us tax reform for a year and it wasn't until it finally was beginning to happen that the market all of a sudden said, oh, wow, we may get it, even though we've really been pricing it in for you know, 12 months. But if you look at since 07 with what central bankers have done, uh, it seems that the market only looks at what's smack in their face. And I think that's going to be with the inflation numbers. It's going to take this anecdotal information to show up in the statistics that the government spits out for people to start to believe it. But look, tomorrow in the U.S., well, tomorrow being December 12th, because I'm not sure when this is getting posted, uh, the U.S. government's going to come out with producer price index. If it comes in just as expected, which is 2.9% year-over-year growth, that would be the highest or fastest pace of gain since January 2012. So you're talking almost a six-year high in wholesale prices. So maybe beginning tomorrow or December 12th, we will begin to see 
this bubbling inflation start to show up in producer prices. Now, the extent at which it will show up in consumer prices, of course, will depend on what pricing power companies have. But inflation is inflation, and somebody has to eat it. It's going to get eaten either by the consumer or, and or by the, 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 the company or the producer who's going to have to eat it through lower profit margins or do their best to pass it on. But tomorrow, again, I keep saying tomorrow, but again, I don't know when you're posting this, December 12th, PPI could be possible inflection point. Then on um, December 18th, we get Eurozone CPI that one of these months, there's going to be an upside surprise. And I think, again, the reactive nature of markets, unfortunately, it won't be until that number is on the tape that surprises to the upside that people will begin to care. Well, that, I mean, that, that, I guess, leads to the, to the obvious question is, what does that look like? When, when markets suddenly care about this stuff again, um, on the day that we get that print in Europe and people suddenly notice it and say, okay, I need to do something now, how does that feed into asset prices, do you think? Um, I think it's swiftly negative uh, because I think the, the response in fixed income could be rather dramatic, uh, and we know that equity markets have just fed off um, what's happened in, with, with growth to interest rates. I mean, we, we know uh, the markets have gotten sort of a free pass when the Fed stopped QE and started raising interest rates because the BOJ and the ECB offset it with $2 trillion of new money in 2017. Well, you know that there's going to be a dramatic amount of pressure on the ECB to possibly accelerate the taper. I mean, Draghi's gone in 2019. Chances are German is going to take over. So while the ECB verbally says, okay, we're not going to, we're, we'll, we'll end QE next year, but we won't get out of negative interest rates, everything gets accelerated if inflation starts to show up in the statistics. Even the Bank of Japan is talking about backing off further from what they've done. There's pressure now on backing off from their ETF purchases and letting the yield curve steepen. So it's a matter of these numbers beginning to reflect higher inflation. It pulls forward the potential end to all these policies. It throws up all the central bank plans. But therein lies the irony is that the incredible mania that central banks have created with interest rates, at the same time they want higher inflation. But just imagine if they get what they wish for in higher inflation. Then, then everything gets turned upside down. Yeah. So I, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating situation, this, this, this reflexivity between central banks, the policies, the outcomes, and how that feeds back into what they're doing is... I mean, I don't know how that little Gordian knot comes undone, but at some point it's going to have to. But but as you look into 2018, how do you see that positioning will have to change to either prepare for this return of inflation or if we do assume that, that nothing is really going to happen until it's on the tape, how are you looking to adjust once you feel as though you've got this, this, this shift in your crosshairs? Well, in a way, things are going to start happening January 1, regardless of what the inflation stats say, because the Fed is going, to, is going to double the amount of liquidity they're taking out of the market, irrespective of the inflation numbers. The ECB is going to cut QE by 50%. So just in, in January alone, there's going to be 30 billion euros less of assets bought in Europe, and there's going to be 20 billion of U.S. dollars out of the, out of the market. So you can call that just say with, with the exchange rate change, $55 billion-ish of liquidity that's just in one month 
in January is not lo- no longer there. Just imagine, though, if inflation starts to percolate and pressure starts to build for them to accelerate. And the Fed, instead of raising three times next year, maybe they have to raise four times next year. Maybe the ECB, instead of carrying QE through September, maybe they have to end that in June or the end of Q2, for example. But my original point is that monetary tightening is accelerating in 2018. So you have at least a baseline of tightening based on what's been announced. And you can throw on if, if Brexit somehow goes easy or somewhat smoothly, the Bank of England is going to be raising rates again. We had South Korea raise rates a couple weeks ago, which is the first Asian central bank to start joining the rate hike cycle. So you at least have a minimum baseline of tightening that I think alone is going to dramatically impact markets because just the ECB and the Fed will take a trillion dollars of liquidity out of the market next year. So you throw in a surprise to the upside in the inflation numbers, and you can assume that there's going to be even potential greater tightening. And it may not be greater central bank tightening. It may be the market that starts to tighten. I, I, I urge people to go back to 2015 when the German 10-year bond yield intraday touched six basis points. One month later, it was 60 basis points. And a month after that, it was around 100 basis points. Now, this is Germany. This is not Greece. This is not Spain in 2012. This is Germany, whose 10-year bond yield went from six basis points to 100 basis points in just a few months. So it was just two years ago. We have evidence of this happening, of risk happening fast. And I think those are the type of things that people should be watching out for. Yeah, it's fascinating. You talk there about uh, the, the fact that you know the market is just looking through all this. I mean, we're looking through the tightening. And, and these are... The central banks have gone to great lengths to communicate their policy. This this idea of forward guidance, which they believe is is the secret to uh, to smoothing the ups and downs when when cycles turn, uh, you know, it seems to be working. But but I think to your point, it works until it doesn't work, and when it doesn't work, things can get very messy very fast. And if 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 we go back thirty five forty years, we've only really had one period of sustained inflation back in the 1970s. Um, so the market, to me, would seem singularly ill-equipped, as are most of the participants in it these days, because they're not old enough to understand this, really ill-equipped to deal with a return of secular inflation, no? Exactly, and, and that we can look at $10 trillion of still negative-yielding bonds. I mean, just imagine all the ECB needs to do and, and Swiss National Bank and Sweden and Denmark, just go back to zero with their, with their negative interest rate policy and the amount of money that's going to be lost in global bond markets, just by going back to zero. And again, it goes back to if the inflation number starts to surprise, it facilitates this whole process. But I want to add another thing is that I'm beginning to believe that central banks are at least acknowledging, not admitting explicitly, but almost implicitly that Asset price inflation is still another form of inflation. And with this new New York underlying inflation gauge, they actually take into account financial variables. Uh, we even had the, the, the Swedish central bank last week acknowledging the housing bubble that they have um, and the potential roll-down of it and how that's going to affect monetary policy. So I... I think they're beginning to acknowledge, but at the same time, they're stuck because they know 
that by taking away that punch ball, it facilitates the adjustment in, in, in asset prices. So it, it is a box that they're in that they can't get out of. Um, but what's scary is that you look at the Fed, for example, and they are taking, you know, they're initiating quantitative tightening and believe that it's going to be a behind-the-scenes type process when the rest of us know that uh, it's not going to be and that it's not the size of the balance sheet that matters, it's the flow of the money that matters. It's you follow liquidity, follow the flow, and that flow is changing into a drip next year. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great point. I mean, the markets are where they are because of central banks. And, and if you want to look at this in a very simplistic fashion, if you take them away or worse still reverse them, um, it, it's not a huge stretch to think that the markets would go in the opposite direction. Yeah, and, and if I can, Grant, just to add, because people, it's very natural for people to look at the Fed and, and, and U.S. inflation and European inflation, but just some quick tidbits that people should read about. Um, even in, in, in Singapore, for example, in the last PMI, and I'm going to read this quickly, greater demand for inputs placed further pressure on supply chains, with vendor performance deteriorating for a fourth successive month and at the steepest rate since July last year. Delivery delays were commonly associated with higher costs as demand for inputs exceeded supply. As a result, purchase cost inflation, inflation rose to the sharpest degree since February. At the same time, wage inflation remained sharp, rising to the highest for 14 months and contributed to overall cost increases. I mean, this is potentially not just a few bits here and there. This is something that could start affecting a lot of different areas of the world, again, at the same time when interest rates are, of course, where they are. Yeah, fascinating. Peter, look, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Now, for the, for the people listening out there um, who don't know how to find you, where can they read your work? Where can they follow you on Twitter? So the, my Twitter feed is pbookvar, uh, and that's B-O-O-C-K-V-A-R. You can read my work at bookreport.com, and it's B-O-O-C-K report.com, and you can learn more about uh, money management business at uh, bookmarkadvisors.com. Fantastic. And, uh, again, a hearty endorsement uh, from me. For whatever that's worth to the audience, they should definitely uh, put you on their Twitter list and and check out the website. Peter, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to doing it again soon. Same here. Thanks so much. You know, this is how you go about building a framework. You know, we have uh, Jawed just quietly paying attention and seeing things shift and putting the stuff on his uh, on his watch list to try and ascertain whether inflation is coming back. And then Peter scouring the world and piecing together kind of a jigsaw puzzle to seeing reports coming out of places like Singapore. Um, and once you start to assemble these jigsaws, you can get a much better sense of where you think inflation is going to come and how strong it's going to be. And my final guest uh, is joining us from Sydney, um, first time on the podcast, uh, Jonathan Payne, author of the beautifully titled Payne Report. Jonathan, thanks uh, for getting up early to join us over there in Australia. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Grant. So uh, inflation is the topic this week, and uh, I wanted to get your sense about where we are in the inflationary cycle, because obviously it hasn't been uh, a problem for anybody for about 15 years at this rate. Um, but I, you know, I, I get the sense that things are shifting a little bit, and, and it may be something that uh, will be on people's radars next year. So I want to get a sense of you where you think we are in the cycle and, and what your outlook is for 2018. Yes, certainly. 
Grant, in, in essence, my view is that wage inflation, particularly in the United States, if we can start there, is, uh, is a little bit like a coiled spring at the moment. It's been compressed, it's been depressed by a range of uh, factors which are you know, well, well established and well understood. The great secular forces of globalization and even one could call Amazonification, technology, so on and so forth. However, uh, I'm just seeing increasing evidence that we are looking at a confluence of forces emerging uh, in the employment market and wages market in the United States, which tells me that next year is the breakout year uh, for wage inflation in the United States. If I look, for example, at the NFIB, that's the National Federation of Independent Businesses surveys, you know, hiring plans amongst small businesses at an all-time high small business optimism, incredibly strong. And all of those types of um, uh, that, that kind of data, it tells me uh, that we are going to see uh, a fairly significant uptick uh, in inflation. I'm, I'm very cognizant of all the debate around the Phillips curve, that it's basically been rendered redundant. It's been squashed. It's no longer relevant. But uh, my, my sense is uh, that the employment market in the U.S. being as strong as it is, uh, will begin to generate wage inflation. And I also note with interest that the more, you know, the, the, the latest Beige book had, you know, commentary around upward pressure on wages, you know, sprinkled like confetti throughout the, the whole report. And, and that's the United States. Uh, other nations where we hadn't seen inflation for, for decades, in fact, of course, Japan, even there we're beginning to see signs emerging uh, of inflationary pressures. I'm sure the Bank of Japan will be very pleased uh, if that was actually, uh, if, that, if that actually materialized. And obviously we know the Japanese employment markets as tight as a drum. Uh, but in Tokyo, for example, I hear from friends uh, that they're beginning to see price rises for basic things, you know, if you buy your coffee or whatever, um, in restaurants, cafes, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, there, there are signs emerging that inflation could actually gain some traction um, next year within the context of a global economy that is undoubtedly, uh, you know, firing on all cylinders. I mean, very rarely have we seen such a synchronized, um, you know, performance and strong performance uh, right across the world, west to east. So where, where do you, when you look at this uh, narrative and you look at this setup for the return of inflation, where do you place the um, withdrawal of central bank stimulus into that? Have, have, they, have they stuck the landing in that they've left it late enough to withdraw that stimulus that the markets can stand, the economies can stand on their own two feet? Or is the withdrawal of that stimulus going to basically flip everything back? The economies will slow down the inflationary pressure will go away. Where, where do you see all that lining up? Well, I think at this point in time, uh, their intent is to withdraw stimulus in, in a very gradualistic fashion, in, in a very, very calibrated fashion. I mean, Mario Draghi has, has gone to some lengths to, to tell us that he's not going to raise interest rates till well past the cessation of quantitative easing. Indeed, he's even left QE open-ended, uh, I would question that personally, but 
you know, let's take the ECB and Mario Draghi at his word, he's going to be very tentative and calibrated in the withdrawal stimulus. And ditto Corrida at the BOJ. My goodness me. I mean, Corrida would like to maintain QE probably forever and ever. But my, my bottom line is that I don't believe that uh, the, the, the withdrawal of quantitative easing uh, will um, uh, generate a significant downturn as yet uh, in the global economy. And the other thing, Grant, I think w- which we should all remind ourselves, you know, inflation is a little bit like toothpaste. You know, try and put toothpaste back in the tube. It's very, very difficult. Once it gets some form of traction, particularly wage inflation, um, then I think we're, we're, we're going to see, you know, some, some challenges ahead. And in my view, Grant, um, I just don't believe the bond markets are pricing that kind of scenario. So I think if you, if you want to try and identify potential banana skins next year, is that the market is mispricing inflation, as indeed I think are the central banks. So um, I, I, I kind of get that there's going to be a withdrawal of monetary stimulus. Um, we're going to get a reduction in the balance sheet, uh, progressive reduction in the balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet next year. So all of those things clearly will be less stimulatory moving forward, but will not be sufficient to, I believe, you know, prevent this takeoff, this inflection point uh, in, in inflation. And if I may just continue on that uh, storyline for a moment, let's remember that in the fourth quarter of um, 2015, Chinese producer prices were declining at an annual rate of 5.9%. And if you recall, we came into the early part of 2016 and the world was falling apart China had become an engine of disinflation, so on and so forth. Now, uh, Chinese producer price inflation on a year-on-year basis is rising at an annual rate of 5.8%. That's a remarkable turnaround uh, in Chinese producer producer price inflation. Hence, today and moving forward, China is becoming a principal source of inflation, not disinflation. Similarly, I, I make a similar argument for, for Japan as well. So, you know, notwithstanding that the central banks are clearly now beginning to move towards a tightening after, you know, eight or nine years of unprecedented monetary stimulus, that in of itself, in my mind, will not uh, derail or, or um, impede what I see now is a very powerful uh, movement around the globe for higher wages. Now, the, the central banks, obviously, guardians as they are of the galaxy, will, uh, as their mandate dictates, be forced to raise rates if inflation starts to get ahead. Now, I, I suspect they will uh, look for any excuse not to do that, and we've already seen Ben Bernanke's alternative framework laid out as a potential reason why they wouldn't raise uh, rates if inflation got above 2%. But it seems as though the seeds for the end of the recovery are being sown by inflation and the necessary reaction from the central banks. When you talk about banana skins, um, going back to World War II, in fact, that by far the biggest cause of recession has been monetary policy. Um, do you think that 2018 is going to be the tipping point where they get one too many rate rises because of this inflationary pressure and they stop the recovery off, or do you think we are going to make it through 2018 without any kind of backsliding? Well, it's an interesting balancing act, isn't it? I think clearly the, the global economy has got 
quite considerable forward momentum at this moment in time. However, uh, there is going to be this kind of collision between the forward momentum in the global economy and the more restrictive monetary policies that uh, you know we've just been discussing as we move through 2018. And if I'm right about rising wage inflation in particular, and, and I really talking about the kind of engine room of the global economy, then clearly there is going to be a, a response uh, by, 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 by deed of their, their mandates, as you've just highlighted, to, to, to further accelerate the tightening. So, yes, all the signs are suggesting, given we are very late cycle, particularly in the U.S. Uh, economic upswing, that by the end of 2018, we could have that unholy and horrible, nasty condition, which, and we don't even like using the word anymore, stagflation, where we have rising inflation clearly, um, which is incredibly hard to, to, to stop once it actually gets going, combined with restrictive monetary policy and then obviously um, some slowing in the economy. So we could start beginning to develop a scenario and a confluence of forces which suggests that by the end of 2018, um, you know, people such as ourselves will be having to use that horrible, horrible phrase, stagflation. I can, I can begin sitting here now at the end of 2017. I, I could, I think, make a plausible uh, case for a stagflationary environment developing by the end of 2018. And that would be clearly a rude awakening for financial markets that have just become so wonderfully happy in this kind of Alice in Wonderland world of ridiculously low <laughs> bond yields um, and, and a kind of Goldilocks combination of disinflation and reasonable growth. So, yes, um, the, the, that, that could rupture um, the, the complacency in markets. Absolutely no doubt about it. So, so when you look out um, into the next year and um, you, you use your framework as you've laid out, what do you think this means for asset prices? How do you see the equity markets performing in these environments and perhaps most importantly, I would say, the, uh, the fixed income markets? Well, this is where it, it, it gets, I think, pretty exciting. Um, all of us, and Grant, I know, I'm sure you do, we, we, those of us um, who can remember 1994, it still sends a chill down our spine. Yes. And that's obviously when we saw that dramatic spike um, in bond yields in, in early 1994. Now, I'm not suggesting that the, 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 you know, that, that, that could be replicated you know, entirely. But I think we're moving into an environment here where the central banks may well be fairly calibrated and cautious in their withdrawal of monetary um, stimulus. But the bond market, um, and remember the days of the bond market vigilantes, my word, what happened to all of us? I mean, we've all gone quiet. But, you know, in, in 1994, there was a rude awakening as the bond market just said, hang on a minute, um, you know, and, and we saw bond yields spike. If we saw anything, anything uh, close to what we saw in 1994, it would be very, very disruptive, obviously, um, for financial markets because we'd require an immediate reflexive recalibration of relative valuations. And, and, and markets are not very good at those kinds of uh, disruptive moments in time. We, we live in a world of elegant linear extrapolation. Most strategists and economists and fund managers 
basically take what's happened in the last six to nine months and then extrapolate in a beautifully linear fashion forward. So if we get a 1994 light or a kind of half 1994 moment, that will be particularly disruptive. Now, I'm looking at that very carefully indeed because uh, I do think that 10-year um, bond deals in Germany, for example, I think 29 basis points as we speak, as I quickly look at my Bloomberg screen, 10-year German bond deals at 29%, quite frankly. I mean, I, I just cannot get my head around that. Um, I do know that Swiss 50-year government bond deals actually went negative for a brief moment uh, in, in, in the middle of 2016. And, and we all said at the time, this is Alice in Wonderland stuff. Six impossible things before breakfast. But moving forward, I do think the market is at risk of a fairly significant, perhaps even seismic, repricing uh, of um, inflationary expectations, which would require um, a significant upward move in, in bond yields, particularly, incidentally, in Europe. I know we haven't spoken about Europe in our, in our quick trip around the world, but, you know, the Eurozone is growing, you know, 2.5%. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, these are good numbers. Yes, we know unemployment rates remain high, um, but I think we've passed the point of inflection in the Eurozone where, where it has been for the last seven years a very powerful disinflationary force on the global economy. It is now exerting an inflationary impulse uh, to the to the to the global economy. So, in essence, the United States, eurozone, Japan, uh, China, all of these large economies are now growing well and beginning to see evidence uh, of inflation. However, we still have the bond market that is living in yesterday. They're still in their wonderful linear and neat extrapolation of the last four to five years. Something has to change here. Now, the ECB may well drag its feet on, on tightening. The BOJ will no doubt drag its feet on tightening. But the Fed has commenced on the path of the normalization of monetary policy. The debate is about how many hikes next year. I'm leaning more towards four. The market's probably more two or three. And yes, we have a new Fed chair in Jerome Powell. And he, by nature, seems to be, excuse the cliche, a bit of a you know the continuity candidate. But, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if Mario Draghi, Kuroda and Jerome Powell can have a certain perspective and view of the world. But uh, wage inflation has no respect for central bank monetary policy. And once it starts gaining traction, history tells us uh, it's very hard to, to to clamp down on it. And if the banks, central banks did indeed try and clamp down on wage inflation, you then get an even more disruptive event because they have obviously therefore fallen behind the curve. So whichever way I slice and dice the scenarios, the respective scenarios for next year and 2019, it tells me that we are at risk of fundamentally mispricing um, this, this wage inflation scenario, a reflexive response uh, and a powerfully reflexive response by the bond markets, bringing me into the thinking that this feels a little bit like the end of 1993. And uh, I, I started my life in, in the early 80s in London in the bond market. So I'm, a, I'm one of those old-fashioned bond people. I still respect um, what happens in the bond market. And 
the transmission mechanism to equities uh, will be uh, unambiguous. Um, they'll have to reprice and quickly. And we're just not used to that type of world. I mean, we live in the world of ETFs and, you know, um, got to be fully invested at all times, 24 hours a day. Uh, we're just not pricing for any kind of disruption. And we see that in the vol markets. I mean, look at volatility. I mean, it's, it's, it's absent. Um, so, you know, as a, you know, I, ha- I try not to be a contrarian. I mean, I, I do try and look at the world as it is rather than how I'd like to see it. But every single anecdotal piece of information and fundamental piece of information tells me we're at risk of a, a fairly significant shift in, in, in inflation expectations, in the market's expectations about bond yields. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's in a nutshell, I suppose, where I'm seeing things at the moment. Well, I guess, I guess the beauty of this is that uh – it really does only need a change in expectations for for things to have to change dramatically. But as I listen to you and you make a, a, an awful lot of good points, um, I wonder. I'm sitting here wondering. You, you bring up the bond vigilantes, and you and I are both obviously old enough to remember when you know, they, they were around. Um, but and as I try and think about all this stuff, I just wonder whether, uh, and this may just be me continuing to trust the bond market as I've learned to do over the years. But the fact that the yields uh, are where they are, I just wonder whether the bond market is seeing through what may perhaps be a brief ex- uh, inflationary period, and they are and they're ignoring that. They're just they're looking through it to the might of the central bank policy that will have to be unleashed should we return uh, to any kind of deflationary uh, period. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I think you make a wonderful point, and I think this is all part of the kind of conundrum and mystery, um, particularly for those of us, as you say, who go back to the 80s and, 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 and remember the kind of extraordinary volatility we used to see in bond markets. I mean, the evidence, um, the, counter, the counter-argument to my own is when I look at the U.S. yield curve at, what, 56 basis points this morning, yeah. twos, tens, using that as our kind of reference point rather than twos, thirties, twos, tens at 56 basis points. And that really, in essence, is telling us that there is a uh, there is a confidence in the bond markets that any kind of incipient inflationary pressures uh, will be, you know, uh, trodden on by, by central banks. I mean, it, you know, the, if the yield curve was at 270 base points, then then clearly the market would be kind of pricing or uh, you know high inflation, so on and so forth, and very robust growth. But the, the, the interesting thing about the yield curve is that clearly there's the front end of the curve, the twos. Uh, you know, have repriced very significantly to to accept the new reality that the, the Fed's embarked on the path of normalization of monetary policy. The longer end is still looking at, you know, relatively benign inflation, so on and so forth. And as you, I think, beautifully put, is this, okay, fine, if the economy gets too strong and inflation goes up, well, restrictive monetary policy will deal with that down the road. Therefore, the yield curve is, you know, 56 base points is a relatively even, you know, it, you know, it, it, it kind of makes some kind of sense in, the, in, in that context. So I, that's the counter-argument to me, and I've actually written in my weekly pain report uh, about the conundrum of the shape of the curve, et cetera, et cetera. I think moving down the road, I, 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 I think the risk is, I think there is a risk that the bond market is, is putting too much confidence in, in the omnipotence of central bank monetary policy and 
understating, understating uh, the inflationary risk. If I look at the five-year, five-year you know, inflation swap rate in the U.S., I mean, it's still relatively benign, significantly higher than it was in mid-2016 when we saw the all-time low in bond yields around the world. Then along came Trump truly uh, in, uh, in November and, and, you know, with all of his turbocharged fiscal uh, policies, et cetera, et cetera. We saw a repricing uh, in, in bond markets, particularly in the United States. Um, but going forward, my, the, the, you know, the kind of essence of my argument is that the, 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 that investors, the markets, and therefore by default the bond market, is mispricing the prospect of higher wage inflation. That's really the kind of core of, of, my, of my argument looking into next year. Jonathan, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, if you wouldn't mind, just let the listeners know how they can find you, where they can find you, perhaps on Twitter, uh, read any more of your stuff. That would be fantastic. Okay, fabulous. Yeah, I, I publish uh, a weekly uh, a weekly um, investment newsletter, um, and I can be found at, um, if you just uh, put in Jonathan Payne, actually, what's the Payne Report um, is the uh, the website address. And my Twitter handle is at the pain report. Um, so yes, that's uh, that's pretty much me, I think. And we should let people know that pain is spelled the good old-fashioned way. None of this P A N E nonsense. This is P A I M. <laughs> the pain well, report. Well, with a name like that, I had to kind of use it this time. <laughs> my, my, but my brother. Uh, my, my, my brother is a doctor, so can you imagine how he's <laughs> Dr. Payne. Yes, Dr. Payne, will see you now. All right, Jonathan, again, thanks so much, and uh, give my regards to Sydney. Thank you so much, Grant. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. You know, uh, the, the, the things that uh, Jonathan is focusing on, the increasing wage inflation pressure uh, and the flattening of the yield curve are probably two of the most important things to watch out for. Wage inflation is the Fed's Achilles heel. And if that starts to pick up, they're really going to have no um, no choice but to raise interest rates faster than perhaps the market expects them to. Either way, 2018, I feel almost certain is going to be a year when inflation is going to be on a lot more radar screen. So hopefully the contributions of our three guests this week have helped you get a sense of what's going to be important and how to look at that as we head into 2018. Now, before we go, uh, one more little treat to give you for Christmas. We've uh, we recorded several of our guests giving us their recipes for success throughout this series. Uh, last week, we heard from Dr. Ben Hunt, Professor Miles Kimball, and Jim Sullivan of Green Street Advisory. And this week, I'm delighted to say, offering us their recipes for success are Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, of Money Strong and Peter Atwater of Financial Insights. First up, Danielle. So my recipe for success, uh, never leave home without a mirror. If you want to succeed in this world, find your own business, start it, and understand it will be the hardest work you've ever done, but by the same token, the absolute most rewarding. But I warn you to never leave the house without a mirror because when and if anything goes wrong, there's only one person you can look to to place blame, and that's yourself. But again, the most difficult, the hardest work you'll ever do, but the absolute most rewarding. And that is my recipe for success. So I think that in reflecting on what has helped me uh, to be successful is never stopping to learn and to be curious and to 
recognize that there is always something that you don't know anything about that you can learn. Uh, if somebody had told me 10 years ago that I would be uh, studying confidence and decision-making, I would have laughed at them. And yet, you know, I've gone from a career in financial services to doing this and, and teaching uh, at a university level. And so I, I just, you know, don't stop learning. Don't stop asking why. But that would be, you know, my, my recommendation. All right, well, that sadly concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance, number 47. Uh, before we go, the usual legal disclaimer. So join in with the chorus, everybody. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. We need to get the guy who does all the TNCs on those adverts who can speak really fast yeah, to yeah, record yeah. a version of this, yeah. isn't it? Next week, we'll be back with one more episode this year and one more episode in this season, in fact. And it's going to be a best of episode. We've selected a bunch of clips from some of our fantastic guests this season. And we're just going to remind you of some of the useful information they shared with us. After that, we're going to take a one week break so James can do whatever James does when he's not in the office. You don't want to know. I do not want to know. And then we will be back with season three. And once again, we are going to mix things up and change things around on you. So make sure you join us on the 11th of January, 2018 for episode one in series three of Adventures in Finance. Between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Yeah, and uh, please leave a review. Please leave a review. It's Christmas, everybody. Leave a review. Yeah, like a little Christmas note. Yeah, something like that. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. We are also lurking in the dark recesses of both Facebook and LinkedIn, so just search there for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter, at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIF James, where, you know, I think I'm going to start posting more stuff. I'm going to make no comment on that, lest I rile up the haters out there. (laughs) That's it from us. We will be back again on the 28th of December with our best of episode. All that remains is to wish those of you who celebrate it a very Merry Christmas. Yes, very, very Merry Christmas, everyone. A very Merry Christmas from all of us here at Real Vision. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com